This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is June 23rd, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is Tracy Presta, um, or as I was known back in my Hofstra days by my maiden name, Tracy Scott. I was at the station from 1997 to 2000. Um, my titles while I was there in 1998, I was music director. And in 1999, I was program director. Okay. Um, what are some of the shows or programs that you worked on at WRHU? So when I first started engineering wise, I was engineering for uh, Giovanna on her Souvenir d'Italia show, which I believe was Sunday mornings. And then... Um, I went on to get cleared for Jazz Cafe and eventually what I really wanted to do, which was Aggressive Edge, where I had um, I had two nights for started off with one, eventually went to two and then back to one again. So that was my my main show was Aggressive Edge. OK, nice. Um, did you use your own uh, own name on the air or did you have a nickname? I did because I had such a generic sounding name and like everybody else was coming up with these cool radio names. And I was like, I can't think of anything. But I was always known as the girl with two first names because I was blessed with Scott for a last mm. name. So I said, we're just going to go with that. And uh, it, it worked in my favor. Tracy Scott? Yeah. Oh, because when you first said that, I was like, that's a great radio name. Yeah, and that's not made up. Like, that's my actual, that was my actual name at the time. So, like I said, everybody was coming up with these cool things. And I'm like, man, like, I want something like that, too. But I can't come up with anything. And I said, you know what? We're just sticking with this. And everybody always, like you just said, was like, that's such a cool radio name. And I was like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, I think some people would, would pay for the privilege of, of coming up with a, with yeah, a good right? radio name like that. So it's built <laughs> right in. All right. All right. So this is a two-part question and answer however it makes sense to you. But what was it that first brought you to the radio station? And then if you could describe for those of us who weren't there, what the station was like, maybe somebody that you met or what it looked like or what it smelled like or, or what the event was that first brought you to the station. So, I mean, this is going back to even before I started at Hofstra. I knew I wanted to do something in communications. Originally, it started out as journalism. Um, but then uh, when I went on the college tours and I actually went to Hofstra and uh, they showed us the radio station, which was in Dempster Hall, which I think it mm -hmm. still is, but it was in a totally different area of Dempster than it is now, I believe. Um, I was just blown away. I was like, I can't believe this is what the radio station at a college looks like. Cause I had been to a few other schools in the area that I won't name and saw mm -hmm. their radio stations and they were like nothing compared to this, to Hofstra's station. So I knew that that was just from the radio station is what made me decide to go to Hofstra because that was the best looking radio station I had seen in all the tours I had taken. So I don't remember why I didn't sign up for the training class right away. It wasn't until my second year, the first half of my second year was when 
I signed up for the training class and got in um, and really got to see the station hands-on. And it was just amazing. I'd never seen so many records and CDs and reels and carts and everything. Like, I couldn't wait to just learn how to use all that stuff. It was awesome. It sounds very exciting. Um, so, but you didn't go to the station during your freshman year. Is that right? Yeah. And now, like, I can't remember if there was a reason why, like, did, if we had to wait until a certain point before we could apply, or I just, like, didn't have the time to do it. But it wasn't until the very first half of my sophomore year that I applied for the training class and started. Okay. So do you know what it was that brought you to the station at that moment? Was there a general interest meeting or did you just wander down between classes? And, and at that moment, when you first get there, what's going on? If you could paint a picture for us. Well, like I had said, I was so blown away by the studio that every time I passed by it, like there was so much activity and people were like in the offices talking to each other and like, you could just see the friendship between the people that were working for the station. And you could see like the person that was on air at the time that I was looking at through the, the fishbowl, as we used to call it. Um, mm -hmm. Just, it just looked so cool. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is where I want to be. And I had grown up always like surrounded by music and radio. And I just wanted to be involved in that so badly that, um, I couldn't wait to be a part of it. Hmm. So you were passing by the station or through those hallways between classes. I guess you were taking communications classes. Yes. Um, during my freshman year, you know, I started out taking like the basics that you needed to take in order to get to the higher up radio classes, because I knew I wanted that to be my major. So like I said, just walking around down there to get from class to class, I would see all this going on. And I was like, it's got to be my turn soon. Like, I, I want to do this. Okay. So you get down to the station and I assume there's a, there's a training class. There's, there's some sort of announcing and engineering training to get on the air. Do you remember anything about that? Um. Yeah. I mean, I remember the training class itself was where, we would sit and there were so many of us. I, I'd have to say there was probably like 25 or 30 of us in a room um, where they would go over all the rules of the station and how the station operated and just things that we would need to know in order to make it work. But then the, the real big stuff was when you got to finally go and observe and eventually take your turn behind the board. Um, those were like the, the really cool parts of it. So an interesting story is um, once we got to the point where, okay, you passed the exam, you passed the training class. Now we got to get you, you know, ready for announcing and for running the board and all that. I don't have too many memories from um, the engineering part of it, but I do remember the announcing class. So... God bless Sarah Roche, who was, you know, the head of the, the announcing class at the time. I remember sitting with her in a room and the point was that they kind of wanted you to get rid of any accent and just sound kind of generic. 
And, and I'm sitting there with her going over sentences and words and repeating things the way I think she's saying them. And she keeps stopping me and saying, you got to try and say it without that accent. You got to get rid of that accent. Now okay. I'm born and bred and raised in Queens and I have a Queens accent. I've been out of state and the minute I open my mouth, they know where I'm from. Um, to this day, I don't even live in Queens anymore. They know right away I'm from Queens. And I looked at her and I said, there is nothing I can do about this. I have always talked like this. I will never be able to get rid of it. If this is going to hurt me at the station and I can't work here anymore, I'm sorry, but this is just the way I sound. And I guess they were okay with it because they cleared me and I was on the air ever since after that. So I kind of forgot about that until you asked. And then I was thinking about it and I was like, man, these people must have been like, what are we going to do with her? <laughs> she just wants to do her own thing and talk the way she talks, but... That's who I am. It, it's funny talking with different people from different generations at mm -hmm. the radio station. Um, so many of us had the Queens or Brooklyn or Long Island accents, mm -hmm. and they stuck with us at least in some cases, and 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 still do to this day. And but there's been an evolution, I think, since the time that we were there in the '90s that. Even in commercial radio, the accents aren't necessarily a bad thing anymore, and they don't necessarily hold you back. And I think it's about the time that you got there that that started to change. Yeah, I see. I, I do hear that more on the radio. I think maybe it's more of like a TV thing, TV news. I see a lot of like, you know, people from all different walks of life, and they all sound the same. They all have that same voice. But radio, it seems like, you know, now, now it's just okay. It's not so generic sounding anymore, which is great. So you're a trendsetter. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm not going to take credit for that, but um, I, I definitely think it's funny when I think back on it and certain other experiences in my life later on, which were similar where people were like, wow, where are you from? Like, <laughs> I guess you could say that's the first time it was brought to my attention, <laughs> So, so you go through all that practice with Sarah and you go through the training class. What do you remember from getting on the air first time? And if not the specific first time, do you remember what it felt like getting prepared to go on the air or how you felt out afterwards? Yeah, I was nervous the first time, especially the first time I was just running the board for a show. Like I certainly didn't want to mess up, but um, like I said, I was working with Giovanna on her show and she was so nice and so patient. Like, and, and I remember for like the first couple of times I did the show with her, everything went perfect. It was only until there was a day when she wasn't there and I had to play an evergreen. Um, that That's where it all went downhill. So in those days we were playing the evergreens were still on, on reels. Mm -hmm. Oh, you had to like take the big bulky reel out of the box and hook it up to the machine. And like, these were all things we learned how to do in the training class. And I was also starting radio classes where we were learning how to do that as well. So it wasn't the first time where I was seeing it or doing it, 
but it was the first time I was doing it like for real for a show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I get it all set up. I get the show running. Everything's going good. We're about 15, 20 minutes in and the tape breaks. And oh. now I'm for lack of a better term about to crap my pants because nothing's happening. There's dead air. I, I just kind of froze for a minute going, this is like worst case scenario that like you would never think it would happen, but now it's happening. So I feel like I sat through about, I'm sure it wasn't, but it felt like probably three hours of dead air. (laughs) (laughs) And it was probably like 30 seconds, but it felt like forever until I could get up and take a look at it and see exactly what happened. And then like, As I'm starting to fix it, I'm thinking, wait, there's still dead air. I need to just throw anything on, like a CD, something. So I just grabbed whatever the first CD was of music next to me and threw it on and got out the old school tape and started splicing this thing together and got it working again and got it back on. But it was the most panic-stricken moment ever that I never in a million years thought would happen just from having to play in evergreen. Like I remember leaving there after the show was over, just going, Oh my God, I need to just sit in my car for like 20 minutes and get my heart rate back because I was freaking out. <sighs> that That is the nightmare scenario. Yeah. Um, and you kind of answered my next question, but, but to follow up, cause I, I graduated in 94. Okay. And we, you know, took the com 21, production class and we were cutting tape and you know the razor blades and the whole thing and i know about that time as we we're entering the commercial radio market things were going digital so mm-hmm. was it part of your training class to learn how to cut tape and splice it together or is that just something you picked up uh being around the station it no it was both like i remember learning it in in the training class and also learning it in my regular radio classes that I took at um, Hofstra. So it it's, like I said, it wasn't something that was foreign to me, but it's a lot different when you can take your time and do it at your own pace in a classroom setting versus we're live on the air and nothing's going out and you got to get this fixed in like 10 seconds, go. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, it was nerve wracking. And we did eventually, like, we were starting to get um, evergreens on, on DATs and other, you know, digital methods. But, you know, shows like that, we, we didn't really have it yet. It wasn't until like a year or so later into my tenure at Hofstra that we started using those, which was a hell of a lot easier than splicing a tape together. So. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was interesting. Well, well, it's it's pretty remarkable, and it, and it's a testament to to yourself that you were able to. I know you felt panicked at the time, but you got it done. You got the station back on the air, and that's that's great. Yeah, it it, it like I said, it felt like it took forever, but 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 it got there. <laughs> And clearly that stayed with you, that feeling. I could kind of hear it in your voice. Yeah, that, like, that... as as I'm telling the story, I remember like. I remember when I left there, I was still like, I cannot believe that. And like, 
that was back in the days, like, I was still, like, a pack-a-day smoker. I was like, I have to go sit and smoke, like, 20 cigarettes right now because I'm freaking out. I was just so worried that somebody was going to be upset with me or it was going to be a disaster. And, like, that was the end of my radio career there. But it was fine. Like I said, it was probably just me ma- making more of it than it was. But there's nothing to describe when when that reel is playing and you just see it snap. I think my heart snapped. <laughs> well, I apologize if this stirs up enough that you, <laughs> no, you, it no, causes no, sleepless no. nights, no. but <laughs> uh, because I think we all, in some way or another, have that that dead air dream where you wake up and oh, you know you're, yeah, you're, it, you're you're dreaming of that. It was definitely like a Howard Stern Private Parts movie moment. If you saw that movie where. Mm-hmm. He's at the station and he just started out and he's playing the Ramones and all of a sudden he knocks over a whole tray of carts <laughs> onto the the uh, the record and he just starts freaking out like that was my that was my private parts movie moment right there. <laughs> That's classic, and and I'm assuming at the end of all this that no one said anything that it wasn't a problem that no, everything I don't, carried on. I don't remember it becoming anything. So I think it was just me, you know, projecting that onto myself. Wow. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's quite an initiation. That's, and, uh, and again, that was at the beginning of your, your career, maybe yeah, a couple that months was in. O- that was only like a few shows in. I had just started engineering at that point. Wow. So, I'm going to, I'm going to jump to this question next because it's about, you know, your comfort level and and you're going in, it's your second year at Hofstra. And when do you feel you got comfortable, let's say socially at the station? When did you feel like, all right, I belong here. This is where I'm going to spend my time. I'm going to, I'm going to plan for my future here. So as I was, you know, continuing to engineer and then eventually I moved on to once in a while, uh, covering jazz cafe. Cause I don't remember having like a steady jazz cafe shift, but I definitely had a steady aggressive edge shift because I knew that was what I wanted. It was around that time when I made the switch from engineering to being on air mm-hmm. and making friends at the station and wanting to get more involved and get on the board. That was when I really felt like this is where I belong. Like the, these are my people. Like all my friends are here. We're all doing the same thing. We are, we're all sharing this interest. So, um, that was when I definitely felt, uh, more comfortable once I started to get to know more people and do more around the station. And who were some of those people that were helping you get comfortable or came in with you at the same time? Oh man, there's so many people to even, name like I had like everybody that that was basically doing aggressive edge which I have to be honest like when I first started there was a lot of people that had shifts that I didn't really know but I knew like the the main producers of the show like there was Roman and Marcello like they gave me my start um on aggressive edge and then like I definitely became friendly with other people that I came up with in the training class and people that were doing um, like Rock and Roll Oasis was before Aggressive Edge and Airwave was after Aggressive Edge back then. So, um, you know, all the people that were 
on air during those shifts that I would see while I was doing my shift. And of course, just hanging around the station itself during the day, you'd meet and talk to a lot of people. So, I mean, there, there's so many people that I'm still friendly with even now. I graduated like 22 years ago, but we still speak and hang out. It, I, it's great. It was like, it's really like a family. It really was back then. Hmm. So at that point, Aggressive Edge was on, was it on every weeknight? It was on every weeknight from 11 to 1. And who were some of the people that were doing the shows then that maybe you listened to and thought, oh, that's good, I like that, or maybe I want to do things like that, but a little bit differently? Who else was on the air then? Oh, my gosh. I can't even, like, I'm trying to remember who the other days of the week people were, but it's kind of escaping me at the moment. Well, like I said, I I definitely worked with Marcello, who back then was his radio name was the Mighty M, and he introduced me to a ton of people um, actually in the industry that he was working with because he was uh, the Aggressive Edge producer. So he was doing the charts and he was reviewing all the CDs and deciding what was going to go on the air. Um, I don't want to say he kind of took me under his wing, but we became friendly and I kind of learned the, the basics when it came to, you know, the, the sound that we wanted to go for and what we should be playing more of and what we should be playing less of and, and what's going to chart and, you know, should we be playing more of what's charting or should we be doing our own thing? And like each jock for every night of the week kind of had their own sound. Like you wanted it to be the same, but everybody kind of put their own twist on things a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to think of names right now, but it's kind of escaping me, but he was really one of the ones that, that showed me how it worked. And honestly, like there's people that he introduced me to in the industry that when I went on to be music director, I got to deal with all those people. And some of them in my current job, I still deal with the same people today because they're still in the industry, which is so great. That's amazing. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about um, you know getting used to being on the mic and, and using your own accent, your own voice. Yes. When, when do you think you felt comfortable being on the air? You said you talked about some early jazz cafe shifts and I assume some classics from Hofstra. When do you feel like you felt confident being on the air? It definitely was not until I started doing Aggressive Edge because that was the music I was listening to. So I was comfortable talking about it. Um, I was taking phone calls and requests from people that, you know, knew what they wanted to hear and also loved the music. So that like really encourages you to, to get on and talk about things. Like I was out there going to shows at the time. So like I was familiar with these bands and seeing them live. So I, I really had things to talk about. I knew what was going on with the bands that we were playing. So it was really helpful in order to kind of build a relationship with the audience and, you know, the rest of the staff in terms of like what the music and the sound of the show was all about. Hmm. Hmm. Um, 
you kind of hinted at this already, but I'd like to go back and, and kind of wrap up our conversation. Uh, we have the benefit of hindsight. You have the benefit of these relationships, these friendships, these work relationships that you've had for, for many years now. Um, and we can look back through that lens. But if you could go back to either just before you started at Hofstra or when you actually started the training class, if you could go back and put yourself in your shoes at that moment, what did you hope Hofstra Radio would mean for you? You know what? At the time, I didn't really think too much about it. It was just something that I I, I knew I'm going to major in this and this is cool and I definitely want to do it. If I had known then what I know now, I would have definitely started earlier because like I said, I don't remember why I took the whole first year and didn't, didn't do it right away, but I definitely would have thrown in an extra year of that because when, when I look at it now, it was some of the greatest times in my life. It really was like, I know a lot of people say like, Oh, I loved high school. I would go back and do that all over again. No, I would totally do my WRHU and Hofstra days all over again, especially I would say the, the last year from 99 to 2000, because that was my program director year. I got to work very closely with Bruce Avery, who to this day, I still consider my one and only mentor that I've ever had because he taught me so much. And our whole executive board at that time was amazing. It was Sean Novad as station manager and Dan Rakowicz was doing production. And I believe Laura Foster, who's, who was Laura Schmeling at the time, was um, our personnel. But we were, it was just so great, such a tight group of an executive board. It was just so much fun. I, I loved every second of it. So, so the only thing I would kick myself over is not, not doing it sooner. Hmm. Do you remember meeting Bruce for the first time or many, any early interactions with him? I mean, I think the first time was mainly, um, like training class, I would say. Um, so, you know, then it's just kind of like, well, yeah, he's, the head of the station and he's the one making the decisions and running things. And, um, you know, kind of one of the people who's going to decide if I make it on the air or not. Um, it wasn't until a, a probably like six months to a year later when I really started working with him more closely. And I guess he must've noticed something in me and said, you know, like, you might make a good music director. Like, are you inter interested in an administrative board position? Like this, this seems like something that would be good for you. And honestly, I had never really thought about it until then, but I decided to go for it and I got it. Um, and I did that for about nine months or so and started getting closer with Bruce until he said, you know, um, let me show you a few things. Let me, let me show you a little bit about how, the executive board runs and, and, you know, a couple of things in terms of like programming and sound to station. So again, I thought nothing of it and I was like, okay, I'd like to learn. So he showed me a bunch of stuff. And, and then towards the end of that year where they were going to decide who was going to run things for the next executive board, he said, 
I don't remember if you told me in advance or if I found out at the uh, um, one of the banquets. Um, they were like, you're going to be program director. And I was like, what do you mean? I, I don't know anything about, you know, being a program director. And Bruce said, that's absolutely, absolutely not true. I've just been showing you these things for the last few months and you ran off with it and you're ready. And just the fact that somebody believed in me and saw my performance as music director for the past year and thought like I did a great enough job that I could be in charge of a sound of a whole station, like that means a lot. And and that's still to this day, not lost on me. Like it just, it, it's very meaningful to me. Hmm. That I, that's, that's really powerful. And, and uh, it, it's, like you said, it's really nice to be recognized and empowering to be recognized in that way. Yeah, I still, like, even from my career after, you know, Hofstra in the real world, like, I don't think a, a boss or a manager has ever made me feel as, as powerful as that made me feel. Like, just knowing that the belief in me was there and that, you know, they wanted me to take the reins on this. Like that, that's something I'm not going to forget. Like that means a lot. Tracy, this was an absolute blast. This was a lot of fun uh, listening to your stories. And uh, I'm really glad you took the time to share your stories. And obviously you've got more and I'll come up with more questions. <laughs> let's, let's do this again sometime. Definitely. You, you just tell me when I'm ready. <laughs>